This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from OrthoEvidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. I just uh, received my oh, Ortho branded. Joe coffee cup. <laughs> I need from, one. I from need Jason one. and the team the, and Bev and the marketing team. So I, I trust you've got yours somewhere. Well, you know what? If, if it's arrived, I will be looking very aggressively for it, but I haven't seen it quite yet. But I'll have it for me next week. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really it's really love nice. It. Love it, love yeah. it, awesome. So, um, cheers, and I hope yeah. uh, your week is going well so far. It has, it has. Yeah. So, as I'm uh, inclined to do now and then, uh, it, I I looked at a a recent uh, version of our publication. Sometimes I don't really pay that much attention because the stuff that's being published now I last saw a couple of months ago and I, I really try to make it a regular practice to see what an issue looks like. So as I was doing that this week, uh, this manuscript uh, caught my eye and it's a uh, it's another RCT on the management of distal radius fractures. And I think it makes common sense that the most common injuries have the most RCTs. And I believe we've published, oh, probably a dozen RCTs on distal radius fracture management in the last uh, three to five years. And they all tend to be really, really well done. This one, no, no exception. Uh, it's uh, from Norway, a group of investigators, and they, they studied uh, volar locking plate versus external fixation in 156 patients. And the conclusion is pretty much uh, what we found over and over again, and I believe what you've published in Ortho Evidence that uh, open reduction internal fixation has quicker return to function. But if you look at the outcomes at one year, they're roughly the same. Um, so the question is, uh, since we seem to be uh, focusing on on this outcome that quicker return of function. Um, with roughly the same results at a year, is it possible to have too many RCTs on a particular topic? You know, um, let me, yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that, you know, the work we've done on let's say hip fractures, before we jump into the distal radius, the hip fractures for what, five decades was called the unsolved fracture despite countless thousands and thousands of papers that were focusing on the hip fracture. And we tended to go in circles. You know, there would be, you know, the ebb and flow, the pendulum would go from fixation to replacement. And then we see it coming back a little bit towards fixation again. You see the same thing in the proximal humerus and by no means is the distal radius, I think, immune to that same issue. And it's a hard, question to ask. So one, one thing that I would have said for this particular study, anytime I've seen a randomized trial that comes out, um, one thing 
that it would be nice to see, and I don't know if this particular group did it, um, but we have been trying to conduct meta-analyses at the time that we're writing or publishing up uh, a trial. So it does two things. One, it says, okay, here's what we found, but here's what this, you know, here's the here's the nugget that this applies to the totality of the evidence in a, in a larger group. And there have been lots of trials and lots of observational studies on, the, on this topic. Now, if you look back a couple of years, and I did, and you look at, you know, other reviews, honestly, this particular study, and again, huge, you know, last thing you want to do is tell authors who spent many years that their trial hasn't had the impact they hoped it does, because it's a huge amount of work to do a trial. So huge congratulations to anyone who conducts a trial, and particularly these authors who did it. But those answers that they found, many ways, were just confirmed by, you know, were predicted by prior studies. In other words, if you look two years ago, the same narrative was out there, right? That there wasn't really a huge advantage in the longer term. So you're right. Um, you can ask yourself, why conduct another trial if there isn't some novel approach or something that we're going to come up that is going to do something to either definitively confirm or definitively refute. And I think we t tend to get caught up in the cycle of doing research sometimes and not thinking about, well, what, what would be the potential cost of doing the research that could have been spent elsewhere if we had focused on a you know, slightly different angle? I'm not saying it's exactly happened in this one, but I'm just that's the general issue I think we all face, and I face it all the time. Sure, but, but as we discussed the last time we got together, two weeks ago, uh, on l large data and machine learning, et cetera, the more data that we have to inform those uh, uh, protocols, uh, the, the better off the precision increases. Isn't that, isn't that accurate? Oh, absolutely. So, but, but the point is, if you, if you, for example, if you take a study of 150 patients, that's relatively imprecise. I mean, in this particular case, you know, I mean, you, you, it's, it's just going to be imprecise because you have a small number of patients. It would have been uh, powerful to say, okay, well, there's been at least a thousand patients prior that have been involved in a numerous comparative studies and randomized trials. Why don't we look at add our 156 to that? And that gets you the precision. So in other words, the authors who publish the trial, let's say, don't necessarily do that, but someone should go back quickly and do that and say, okay, what do we learn from all this information? And has it made us, you know, has it given us new insights? My perception is looking at the results that these insights that we have now are probably not ones we didn't already know. Right. Yeah. Well, I've got I've got another question to ask you, and I, I know you've had this. Uh, anybody that's been involved in, I suppose, uh, uh, promoting randomized trials gets the question. Well, um, that that's uh, not my results. Um, you know, my my results are better. Uh, and we've we've talked in the past on Ortho Joe about the expert uh, yeah. impact. Uh, so how how do how do we really dialogue with our colleagues who who say that the surgeon is the majority of the outcome, uh, and uh, these results don't apply to me because my results are better? How how do you how do you respond to that at Mac when you get that? answer. Although I, I suppose at Mac, you get that a lot less frequently than other centers. Oh, no, no. We get it all the time, but uh, it happens all the time. And the truth of the matter is, you know, there is no right answer to way to respond because generally speaking, you know, if you look historically at journal clubs, you know, where papers were reviewed, you'd have that statement all the time. And they'd say, you know, discard that paper. And it would usually be, you know, one of the influencers in the room who just happens to know that technique. It's just, you know, um, there's a lot of nuances that weren't done. And, and you all know that I don't do it that way kind of thing, right? And that would be the difference. Yeah. The truth is that person, he or she is correct. I mean, the reality is, is that the trial takes the average across the whole group. Now you remember 
one way that we challenged that assertion in one of the, in our hip fracture trials was, you know, well, what if we just had surgeons who believe in a particular approach and are expert in a particular approach do that procedure? And we had called that the expertise-based trial. Now, that in itself has some advantages because then you're, you're only doing the procedure you really believe in. So, you know, you're, you're getting two groups doing what they strongly believe in. The downside of it, though, is it, it, it also challenges someone to say, well, if treatment A works, then you have to say to yourself, okay, it's, the treatment may work, but am I, as, am I equivalent to the surgeons, I believe, who did that treatment? And if I don't feel comfortable, then I'd have to get retrained. So it does have that, some of that some of those nuances that are built into the expertise-based design. There is no right answer to how we sort this out, but I do think there are questions that are more amenable to the broad generalizable trial, more of what we might consider to be the bread and butter, uh, larger procedures where hopefully there would be a, you know, a, a general level of, of comfort and confidence that would be you know, provided by most people practicing in that area rather than the very focused, you know, comminuted fracture treatment, the, the acetabular fracture treatment, where it would be a bit harder to generalize, you know, across multiple centers, multiple sites. Right. So stick stick with the common patterns and the common diagnoses and Correct. Correct. try to make it as broadly applicable as possible. Right. So, so in this, yeah, yeah. So in this case, for example, distal radius fractures, totally reasonable to consider a multi-center trial. The only thing I would say is if, if you had to go, you just go a lot bigger, and yeah. you think about, and you ask yourself, what what does a future trial look like? You know, and maybe we can discuss that. But I mean, you know, is it more of the same? And that's the question we'd have to think about. And how would you get to to something more novel? I guess would be the real challenge of a bigger trial. Right. But I kind of want. I'd like to stick with the distal radius here because I've got some other questions and uh, uh, I, I guess angles to ask you to consider. So now we're seeing at the journal a lot of cost effectiveness submissions. Uh, and uh, I would say the number of submissions is probably doubling every 18 months or so. Lots of interest in cost effectiveness. And the distal radius, of course, is no exception. Uh, I was able to find fairly easily uh, this, this study, which is out of Harvard, on the cost effectiveness of the various ways of managing a distal radius. And uh, really nice, well done uh, study. Uh, and the procedural costs uh, in the uh, methods were 7,638 for closed reduction and perk pinning, 10,170 for open reduction internal fixation with a volar plate, and 9,886 for external fixation. So uh, not a huge difference. And then when you consider the impact on the cost-adjusted quality of life and other outcome measures, these authors conclude that there's really only a five to 10% difference in, in the frequency of probability that find open reduction internal fixation to be more cost-effective. So um, very interesting. And so my, my question for you, again, going back to what we discussed last time we were having a cup of coffee is, as we build these uh, huge data sets uh, on uh, patient complications and, and functional outcomes, et cetera, how is that going to improve our ability to do these cost-effectiveness trials? Well, so first of all, I'll, 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 I'll just make a general statement on what I think we've seen across a wide variety of common fractures, which is when you often have multiple surgeons around the world feeling comfortable with multiple different approaches, as we do in the proximal humerus and the distal radius particularly as well, chances are that when they're tested you know, experimentally, 
we're not likely going to see big differences, right? Because usually, if there's a big difference, that that wave happens, and you know, we 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 change practice. So, like reality, total hip arthroplasty. Yeah, right. And the reality is, is that you know, there's lots of lots of great ways to uh, to treat a distal radius fracture. In this case, is the, now these were the extra articular types, right? The A3 types, if I recall yes. from the paper. Okay, yeah. so in that particular group, you would say, okay, you know, uh, there, there are other approaches, whether it's pins, whether it's an X-fix, whether it's actually even the non-bridging X-fix. I recall back in the day with Margaret McQueen right. saying, you know, you get range of motion. So there's yeah. multiple ways to be innovative with any of the techniques. And I guess the bigger question, it gets back to, the principle I think of evidence-based practice has been it begins and ends with the patient. So interacting with an individual patient, um, you know, you have to be able to give them an informed decision. And I think these the, the papers that publish in the JBGS just do, you know, do just that. They give you an ability to give patients a really informed decision around at least what we know at the current state of the evidence. So on par, you know, either is going to work. And if a patient says, no, I'd like to just have some pins and, you know, here's the reason why. Okay. And you can have a discussion with them. Well, so be it. That's not a bad decision in the context of where they will be a year from now. Right. You know, a sports figure may have a slightly different approach. You know, they may want to get back very quickly and then they may have a slightly different approach to how they want to manage it. But that would be that, um, you know, how you'd use this information. But the large data sets, to your point, yeah. absolutely. I think what we what we are missing out on is the opportunity to collect, you know, and we you've used this term real world before, you know, as much data as we can possibly get. But whether it's real world or whether it's coming from aggregated randomized trials, it's still information that we can use. And I think we should be building many more algorithms as we get more data to understand who's at risk, which patients do better with which type. So what we do know is the extra articulars, maybe there's no difference, but there's a whole variant of fracture types that we could be sure. calculating involving. We can't do enough trials, Mark, as you know, to capture all that, right? So some of the nuance variability and the precision is going to come from very big data sets. And I do think it's important that we collect them. I don't know if you are aware of any large groups that are collecting distal radius uh, data sets, but I know, you know, we've seen it in hip, we've seen it in the shoulder. I know it's happening. And I'm sure, you know, we see it all throughout sports and the ACL, for example, and knee injuries, yeah. but that would be an area where you'd really want to collect data. Right, I, I'm unaware of uh, any groups too, and I'm, I, I would be willing to bet there are there are some though. Yeah. So I've got one last uh, aspect of this fracture to discuss, and it might be worthwhile to address this at a future ortho Joe session. But to me, where we really need to focus is on this sentinel event as being the 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 shout out. Hey, I've got poor bone quality. You need to, as the treating surgeon, initiate an investigation of my bone quality. You need to do uh, laboratory testing on the basics, you know, the, uh, the vitamin D, the, uh, uh, the checking parathyroid function, et cetera, et cetera. And we are failing miserably uh, at this. Um, we've been at this trying to raise the level of interest and consciousness in the field of orthopedic surgery for 15, 20 years uh, through the AOA's own the bone program and, and efforts in Canada. Earl Bogosh has been a real leader. Yeah. Uh, and with the advent of fracture liaison services and things, but I, we've got a long way to go. And what, 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 what really brought this as why bringing it up today is yeah. when I was uh, seeing patients uh, uh, more frequently who had, who had hip fractures, uh, I had three in a row in one clinic session who, when I look back at the record, these were patients in their 70s. They all had a distal radius fracture in their 50s. 
and nobody did an investigation or did anything about it. Uh, and I, I don't know how we can construct a trial uh, to, uh, to, to further uh, motivate the, the, our colleagues to pay attention to this as a, as a sentinel event in investigating uh, bone health. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? I, I know we're running out of time, but. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, so first of all, I think you know, I, it's more of a comment than anything, but I fully agree with what you're saying because even in our trial data on hip fractures, for example, we found that even in a controlled trial environment where surgeons, you know, there's always a positive response bias and you're, you're, you're being watched, you're kind of, you know, you want to be your best. 15, 20% of patients with hip fractures were getting a formal, um, you know, uh, putting on, put on the appropriate medications for osteoporosis and realizing that in the patient populations we were dealing with, that was an osteoporotic marker right there. Yeah. Distal race is the same thing. And I think it gets back to historical just ownership, right? There's perception is that this is a medical issue. And, you know, one, I, I'm not careful. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm not up on all the treatments and I don't want to start, you know, getting involved in managing all these treatments. I'm, I'm not an expert. But then the, the, the other disconnect, I think, is, well, someone in the system, for sure, like the patient's family physician, someone is going to manage this. Um, and, then, and then what happens is everyone you know, is looking at everybody else, and it's not happening. Right, right, and, and, right, and that's exactly it. And I just think that we are putting too much of the uh, blame uh, because we're not owning it. And I think, to your point, the exact term is own that bone. And if we at least do some simple things... Uh, we can make that difference. And I don't know what would change practice considering the amount of energy that's gone into osteoporosis and also among our rheumatologist colleagues and endocrinology colleagues and doing the research, the data is there. It's okay. just, um, I think it's, a, it's an issue again of knowledge dissemination and to your point, owning it. Taking responsibility. Absolutely. Well, it's been a great discussion. And uh, ne next time we meet, uh, it'll be your topic uh, to choose. I know. Uh, yep. I just want to uh, uh, remind our listeners, we are developing that mailbag function. So uh, and I look for the information on how to make a comment or ask a question or uh, perhaps uh, introduce a topic that we can discuss in the future. So until then, Mo. Cheers. Have a good day. Cheers. And hopefully your coffee will energize you to a great, a great day. I will. Well, and I'm looking for my cup. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go run out right now and see if I can find that thing. So okay. hopefully for next time. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.